0: You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey.
1: Your journey. Your Your journey. journey. Your journey starts here. Here.
0: Good evening, everyone. Uh, Welcome to the Maryland State Library for the Blind and Physically Handicapped. My name is John DeMond. I'm the department manager of the business, science, and technology department at the Pratt Library around the corner. Um, I'm a big history buff, which is something I think I got from my father. And um, nine years ago, he and I went out west to South Dakota and Wyoming and Colorado for the first time. And um, the thing that really struck me is is the the rich history that we, at least out east, had no idea about. Uh, so it was really great um, to, read, uh, to read this book and, and enlighten me. In The Earth is Weeping, Peter Cousins gives us both sides in comprehensive and intimate detail. He illuminates the encroachment experienced by the tribes and the tribal conflicts over whether to fight or make peace, and he explores the squalid lives of soldiers posted to the frontier and the ethical quandaries faced by generals who often sympathized with their native enemies. The Earth is Weeping is the recipient of the 2017 Gilder Lehrman Prize in Military History and was chosen by the Smithsonian Magazine as one of the top 10 history books of 2016. Peter Cousins is the author or editor of 17 books on the Civil War in the American West. In 2002, he received the American Foreign Service Association's highest award, given annually to a foreign service officer for exemplary moral courage, integrity, and creative dissent, which I love that. That's (laughs) awesome. I wish more places had had awards for that. Um, he He was a frequent contributor to the New York Times Disunion series, and he's written for America's Civil War, Civil War Times Illustrated, MHQ, Cowboys and Indians, BBC World Histories, and Smithsonian, among other publications. So join me in welcoming Peter Cousins.
1: Thank you very much, folks, for coming out this evening. Um, I'm certainly glad uh, glad it wasn't like, uh, like last night. <laughs> well, you know, the Indian Wars, I think for all of us, conjures up a lot of very, very Vivid images: uh, cavalrymen on horseback fighting fighting Indians on a horseback at close range. Indians overwhelming small detachments of soldiers. And some of these images that, that come to mind for us are are true, and uh, and f- far too many are are false. I actually are actually myths that have grown up around the Indian Wars of the American West. And it's those myths that I want to discuss this evening. But before we get to that, I want to give you a sense of, of the vastness of the subject um, and uh, something what a challenge it is to try to cover it in, in 40 minutes. Um, This is the period of time that we'll be talking about this evening, the period from 1866 to 1891, and the region in question, the American West, which is covered in my book, is the entire shaded area of the map here, essentially more than half of the the continental United States. Of course, 1866, something uh, very important that happened just a year earlier, that is to say, the Confederate surrender, and the end of the American Civil War. And with the end of the Civil War, there was a a vast release of the reunited nations' energy and a a reunited push westward on the part part of Americans. The area, again, in question that we're going to be talking about, the entire... The entire American West, as I as I showed you in the previous map here, co- covers everything from the desert, desert southwest of Arizona, New Mexico, and northern Mexico, to the Pacific Northwest, Oregon, Idaho, northern California, to the Northern Plains, the Dakotas, modern-day Montana, down to the Southern Plains and Texas. A huge, again, a huge, vast panorama, what was the situation in general terms in the country in 1866 when our story starts? Well, there were about 38 million non-Native Americans in the reunited United States in 1866. Already almost 2 million lived in the American West, the majority of them in Texas and in California. There were, by contrast, only about 200,000 Indians in the West. Uh, approximately 75,000 of those lived on what we call the Great Plains, which is was the center of most of the action that we associate with the Indian Wars of the American West. The Great Plains, from from the Montana Canadian border down down into Texas, and of the of these 200,000 Indians, perhaps 35,000 were. Warriors, that is to say, young men of, of fighting age. The Army, uh, at the time, the Civil War ended, of course, there were nearly 2 million men in, in uniform in the Union Army, but the Army quickly disbanded. By 1869, the United States Army, regular Army, was down to 54,000 officers and men. And just uh, seven years later, in 1876, United States Army consisted of only 25,000 officers and men, not only to fight in the American West, but also on Reconstruction duty in the American South. So I I threw these up here just to give you an idea of the numbers uh, of people, both Indians, uh, potential settlers, and, and soldiers that we're talking about. And again, the period in question, 1866 up till the tragedy at Wounded Knee in December 1890 and the immediate aftermath in 1890 91 I I was uh three months ago now I was speaking at the National Book Festival in, in Washington and the evening before David McCulloch gave a talk to to we authors and he said something that, that really really resonated with me um, that I really appreciated and he, he said that you know he never He's never written a book on something that he knew much about, that he's always been drawn to a subject because it's something that he wanted to learn about, and he felt that in learning about it himself, he could better convey it with freshness to to readers. And, and that's that was how I came to the subject of the Indian Wars of the American West. I, I thought I understood, in at least a, a general sense, what had happened during these... These, these 25 tumultuous years. But I, I realized, as I went into my research, just how many misconceptions I'd been operating under how, and how these had stemmed from uh, long perpetuated myths. Of course, to some degree, myths and misconceptions always distort history. But I, I would argue that in the case of American history, the Indian Wars are uniquely susceptible to, to myths and misconception. For much of the 126 years uh, since the tragedy of Wounded Knee, a great deal of both popular and academic history, as well as film and fiction, have depicted the period as, as an absolute struggle between good and evil. Reversing the roles of heroes and villains uh, as necessary to accommodate changes in our country's conscience and the way we perceived Indians and perceived perceived the past. In the first 80 years after the tragedy at Wounded Knee, which again marked the end of Indian resistance in the West, the United States romanticized. Indian fighters, and tended to vilify or to trivialize the Indians who resisted them. You know, the army most often was portrayed as shining knights of an enlightened government uh, dedicated to conquering the wilderness and to quote-unquote civilize the West and its Native American inhabitants. Well, all that changed abruptly in 1970, And the story reversed itself, and the pendulum swung to the opposite extreme. Americans were, of course, developing an acute sense of the countless wrongs that had been done to the Indians. Uh, This was, of course, the Vietnam era. We were feeling guilty about a lot of things, and justifiably so. And that is the year that D. Brown's elegantly written and passionately wrought Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, an Indian history of the American West came on the scene, and later that year, the film Little Big Man. Uh, D. Brown's book, and to a lesser extent, the movie Little Big Man, helped shape a new saga to articulate the nation's feelings of guilt about the way the American Indians had been treated. In the public mind, the government and the army became seen as willful exterminators of the native peoples in the West. And the earth is weeping. What I've tried to do, what I what I intended to do and hope to accomplish, is to bring historical balance to the story, to tell the story from both sides, to try to present a, as objective a picture as I possibly could through the voices of In large measure, of participants on both sides. Of course, the first step to presenting any balanced history is to strip away these myths or these misconceptions uh, that have that have grown up around the subject. There, there are far, really far too many for us to discuss uh, them all tonight. So, what I want to do is is address what I consider to be the three most egregious as I say, the three greatest and most commonly held misconceptions uh, about the Indian wars of the American West. And here they are. And all these really were, to a greater or lesser extent, kind of a surprise to me as I wrote, researched and, and wrote the book. The first myth is that the regular army was eager to kill Indians. The second is that the United States government also wanted to exterminate, to physically exterminate, the Indians. And the third myth is that the Indians in the West somehow united to re- resist white encroachment. And a bit about my, my terminology I should just probably throw in here. In the book, I use the terms Indians and whites. I used the terms that were, I don't, I don't want to be anachronistic, so I use the terms that were common then. And um, of course, obviously, by whites, I mean any non native. Americans, be they white, black, oriental, or, or European immigrants. So just, you know, clarification of, of, of terms. So having said that, let's just go ahead and take a look at these three myths, and, and I'll um, try to debunk those, I hope to your satisfaction. And we'll begin with the, with the fallacy that, that the regular army was, was eager to kill Indians, and I'm wondering, anyone here uh, happen to recognize this uh, jaunty gentleman? Yes, sir? George Crook. George Crook, absolutely right. Uh, George Crook was one of the Army's premier Indian fighting generals in the West, um, and he didn't particularly like to wear uniforms. As you can see here, he, uh, this picture on the, on the left uh, is how he typically appeared in the West, in civilian clothes, a pith helmet carrying a shotgun and riding a mule. He was a rather rather gruff, unconventional sort, but a very effective Indian fighting general. During the height of the Indian Wars in the 1870s, a newspaper reporter asked Crook how he liked his job. Crook replied, not much. It was a hard thing, he explained, to be forced to do battle with Indians who more often than not were in the right. Crook went on to say, and I quote, I do not wonder, and you will not either, that when Indians see their wives and children starving and their last source of supplies cut off, they go to war, and then we are sent out there to kill them. It is an outrage. All tribes tell the same story. They are surrounded on all sides. Their game is destroyed or driven off. They are left to starve, and their remains... But one thing for them to do: fight while they can. Our treatment of the Indian is an outrage. Now, when I came across that newspaper article, uh, I was I was rather surprised, uh, particularly to read that a that a general of the day would offer such a candid and forceful public defense of of the Indians, and you know it seemed. Rather implausible to me at first at, at first blush because again it contradicted that enduring myth that the regular army was the implacable foe of the Indian. Now Crook was he was far from being the only high-ranking officer to protest the injustice that was done in the Indians. John Pope, who uh, some of you may recognize the name, John Pope uh, was the one who Robert E. Lee defeated at the Second Battle of Manassas Manassas in the Civil War and was then sent west. John Pope, um, in 1874, commanded the huge department of the Missouri, which comprised nearly half, or at least just over a third of the entire American West. And Pope actually suggested uh, on one occasion that soldiers be sent to help the Indians eliminate white buffalo hunters. (laughs) The occasion, it was was spring of 1874, Uh, the buffalo hunters, you see a couple of them here, had decimated the buffalo herds of western Kansas, the last great southern herd uh, that wandered freely. And they were now setting up shop in an abandoned trading post on the Texas Panhandle, called Adobe Walls, and they had resumed the killing of Indian buffalo on reservation land. That is to say, buffalo that had been promised Indians on the reservation in uh, in western Oklahoma uh, and the Texas Panhandle area as their their own. Well, the army thought that the fight had gone out of the Southern Plains tribes. They'd been defeated pretty decisively uh, five years earlier, Uh, but the army was wrong. And at dawn on June 27, 1874, 500 warriors spilled down a steep ridge a half mile east of adobe walls and made a dash to wipe out the despised buffalo hunters. The doors of these sod shacks slammed shut, and 29 buffalo Hunters battled the attackers to a standstill. One buffalo hunter managed to slip through the Indian lines after dark and rode all the way to Kansas for help. The governor of Kansas, the nearest civilian authority, appealed to General Pope to dispatch troops to raise the siege and to save the buffalo hunters. Pope turned him down flat. Pope wrote to him, Indians like white men are not reconciled to starve peacefully. The buffalo hunters have justly earned all that may befall them. If I were to send troops to the locality of this unlawful establishment it would be to break it up and not protect these men. Well, General Pope, uh, General Crook risked public censor and General Pope imperiled his career to protect to protest in unjust treatment of the Indians. Another general named Edward R.S. Canby went a significant step further. He gave his life in the cause of peace. It was April 1873. This is a picture I actually took. Um, this is the lava beds of northernmost California along the Oregon border. Canby was in the lava beds Trying to bring an end to a standoff between some 60 well entrenched Modoc Indian warriors and their families and nearly 400 soldiers. It had been a standoff that had gone on for about four months. Now, the Modocs had, had legitimate grievances. Uh, white ranchers, unwittingly abetted by the military, had driven the Modocs from their small parcel of land in southern Oregon. And they fell back into the into the fastness of the lava beds of northern California. Men died on both sides, and in the interest of averting further bloodshed, Canby agreed to a peace conference with the Modoc leader, Captain Jack. Even though Canby's interpreter, who was herself a Modoc and was a cousin of Jack, had warned him and warned the general that there was treachery afoot. On Good Friday. Uh, 1873, Canby, his Modoc interpreter, and her white husband, and two very frightened peace commissioners met with Captain Jack and several other Modoc leaders at a peace tent between the lines. Canby handed out cigars and said, My Modoc friends, my heart feels good today. Those were Canby's last words. Moments later, Captain Jack blew his face off with the revolver. Camby was the only general to die oops, to die during the Indian Wars. And here's a cross showing where the fatal event took place. So I, what are we to conclude from these three episodes? And that is, I think, the essential truth that the plight of the Indians deeply disturbed most senior officers and that more often than not they sympathize with the hostile Indians' They were charged with subduing now, what can we say about u s government policy and this is this is a very this is a very <laughs> sticky area. Um, we can you know question its wisdom or its morality, especially looking back from the vantage point of of today but I can't emphasize enough the fact that it cannot be said that the government ever intended to physically exterminate the Indians. There was no such thing as a physical genocide if the Indians contemplated. That the Indian way of life must be eradicated if Indians were to survive, however, was taken for granted. We can use the term today, I guess, cultural genocide. That was taken for granted. That was an assumption that the only way the Indians could survive was if they became just like the white man. Federal Indian policy after the Civil War uh, evolved in in fits and starts. When the war ended and Lincoln was assassinated, uh, Indian policy was in in, in tatters. Uh, Here, by the way, this is, if if you read my book, this this is an episode from the prologue, and this is Mary Todd Lincoln right here. And uh, uh, several peace chiefs were visiting Lincoln in the White House well, when the war ended, uh, neither the new president, Andrew Johnson, nor Congress were able to fashion anything like a coherent Indian policy, which left things, as General William Tecumseh Sherman, the commanding general in the West, put it, to, quote, caprice in the hazard. Another problem was rampant corruption that ran through the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which was charged with managing Indian, Indian affairs in the West. Here we see a popular cartoon of, of the day lampooning the, the corruption in the Indian Bureau. There was, a, there was also a popular story told of a chief who described his agent to General Sherman in these terms. He said, quote, <clears throat> Our agent, great man, when he comes, he brings everything in a little bag. When he goes, it takes three steamboats to carry away his things. That is to say, to say he was lining his pocket at the expense of the Indians. In 1869, we had a new president, Ulysses S. Grant, and he famously dec- declared when speaking of the Indians, quote, let us have peace, unquote, in his first inaugural address. Grant instituted a, a carrot and stick uh, body of principles that came to be called the peace policy or the Quaker policy. He replaced the corrupt Indian agents with religious men, especially with Quakers, and with Army officers. He established independent oversight of the Bureau of Indian Affairs uh, to try to end corruption. And his policy went something like essentially like this. The Indian agents in the West were tasked with assembling the Indians in their jurisdiction onto permanent reservations that were well removed from the overland travel routes or from uh, white settlements, which, of course, became harder and harder as years passed. And then on the reservations, get them started on the road to civilization and, above all, to treat them with, quote, kindness and patience, unquote. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's worth laughing. Um, Indians who refused to settle on reservations would be turned over to military control, however, and be treated as friendly or hostile as circumstances might justify. And although kindness and patience, not to mention common decency, were often lacking in its implementation, and some of the reforms that Grant instituted, such as replacing uh, the corrupt patronage agents, uh, were abandoned and corruption resumed, the principles that Grant laid out officially guided federal policy throughout most of the Indian Wars era. The end result, of course, was that the Indians were dispossessed of their lands. The question then naturally arises, well, how did the Indians respond to this? How did they respond to the broken promises, broken treaties, and relentless white encroachment. And that brings us to the third enduring misconception that I want to try to dispel today. That is to say, the Indians united to resist the whites. Um, this, this single picture here, I think, again, a picture is worth a thousand words. I think this one in particular. Is anyone familiar with this kind of art by chance? This is called ledger book art, and what the Indians in the, in the West would do, um, get, get ledger books, either buy, steal, find, whatever uh, plain this effect, you can see in the, the background the, the accounting by whoever owned this book before, and they would draw pictures of what they consider to be their most distinguished acts as warriors, their most heroic acts. invariably those pictures showed them killing an Indian of another tribe. Essentially in this case here we have a a Cheyenne warrior killing a Pawnee warrior. So as this picture demonstrates not only did the Indians fail to unite in opposing uh, the westward expansion of civilization but they also continued to make war on one another. And you know, this is a su- subject that I could talk about, you know, for an hour just so, in and of itself. But these were warrior cultures by and large, and intertribal warfare was so deeply ingrained, too deeply ingrained in their cultures for them to really act otherwise. I mean, there was really only one way for a young man to be to make something of himself and even to, to get married to some of these tribes, and that was through war honors and war honors against other Indians against. Tribal enemies counted far more than war honors taken against soldiers or against settlers. So there was really no sense of, among the Indians of being a single people until it was until it was far too late. And during the course of the Indian Wars, to kind of drive this point home a, uh, a little deeper, uh, an army officer asked a Cheyenne chief why his tribe preyed on their not only their Pawnee, but also on their Crow Indian neighbors. And the chief uh, answered, uh, answered, matter of factly, he said, well, we stole the hunting grounds of the Crow because they were the best. We wanted more room. And here we see a, uh, a Cheyenne killing a, an unfortunate Crow Indian here. A uh, Lakota, which is what the Sioux Indians call themselves, a Lakota chief said something similar to a government treaty negotiator who was uh, um, discussing uh, discussing the same theme with him. The, the, the Lakota chief said, "You have split my land, and I don't like it. These lands once belonged to the Crows and to the Kiowas, but we whipped these nations out of them." And in this, we did what the white men do when they want the land of the Indians, um, I'm sure the irony perhaps was lost on the, on the chief, but these were certainly sentiments that uh, acquisitive uh, s- settlers determined to clear the West of, of Indians could readily, readily appreciate. And one more thing that's frequently lost in the in the myth conceptions about the West, kind of a subset of this third myth, is, a, is the fact that there were numerous tribes that actually accepted the white presence, uh, that joined with the army. Uh, kind of applying the old adage, "The enemy of an enemy is the enemy of an enemy is my friend." Uh, the Shoshone, the Pawnee, uh, the Crow are all examples of tribes that that fought fought with the government against old tribal enemies and really hastened the end uh, of the Indians in the West. Uh, The Pawnee, just for example, um, were vitally important to the construction of the Union and Pacific Railroad. Here we see a a picture of one of uh, many Lakota and Cheyenne raiding parties that brought work on the Union Pacific to a standstill uh, that summer. I don't know if any of you have seen the the show Helen Wheels that was on a few years ago. You might recall the the countless Indian raids on the on the Union Pacific. So, the army, excuse me, proved incapable of stopping these war parties. So, instead, a battalion of Pawnees were recruited as soldiers. Here we see some of the Pawnee scouts, Pawnee soldiers uh, awaiting orders. And the Pawnee mauled one large Cheyenne war party so badly that raids on the railroad stopped and work resumed unimpeded. And I think it's fair to say that the presence of the Pawnee battalion, ironically, shaved a year off the construction of the Union Pacific and off the the transcontinental railroad overall and probably shaved off two seasons of hell on wheels in the the process. But it's interesting, I think that it was Indians who... Enabled the construction of the transcontinental railroad to be completed uh, as as quickly as it was. Uh, as, as destructive as this intertribal fighting was, and that went on, it continued to go on uh, as the Indians fought the army. What what ultimately Doomed the Indian resistance um, uh, in equal measure, if not not more so, was the inability of individual tribes to maintain any kind of cohesion against the white threat. The only tribes that that um, were able to remain unified were those that accepted the the white presence. Again, the Shoshone, the Crow, the Pawnee. None of the tribes that we think of as famous for fighting. Um, the government that is to say, you know, the Cheyenne, the Lakota, the Apache, uh, none of these tribes, the, the, the Comanche, none of these tribes were ever unified either for fighting or for accommodating themselves to the white presence. Each tribe had what you might call either its war or its traditionalist faction, and its peace or accommodationist faction. And these two factions would... You know, struggle for dominance within their tribes and they would clash sometimes violently with one another um, the Kiowa offer uh, I think a particularly tragic example of a tribe that was torn asunder this uh, gentleman here is a young Kiowa chief named Kicking Bird and he led the tribe's uh, accommodationist faction or peace faction he almost single-handedly kept the Kiowas out of what was called the Red River War, which was the last great struggle for the Southern Plains and which ensued after that episode at Adobe Walls we talked about earlier. I mean, he almost single-handedly kept all but maybe a half dozen Kiowa out of that war. Nevertheless... Uh, the government decided after the Red River War to apply a new policy. They were going to um, round up the instigators of the war and send them to Florida for imprisonment. Um, and if you ask, you know, if you want my my opinion, the, in, the true instigators were the buffalo hunters. But of course, they couldn't really quite quite uh, send a, a bunch of uh, white buffalo soldiers to imprisonment, so they chose. A quota uh, from among the different tribes that were involved in the in the Red River War, and they coerced Kicking Bird into selecting a quota of Kiowa uh, for imprisonment, even though again the Kiowa really were not involved to any any great degree. So Kicking Bird found himself in kind of a quandary, and then to ease the burden on the tribe, he uh, selected. a handful of Mexican captives, and the worst tribal delinquents to be sent off to imprisonment. Um, but he also chose a, a rather vicious uh, war leader named Mamontai, uh who was his principal rival. Uh, and Kicking Bird's reluctant complicity cost him his life. As he was seeing the prisoners off, with, with words of affection and with a promise that their imprisonment which would be brief, which in fact it was intended to be just well, I shouldn't say just, but the government intended a year's imprisonment in Florida to, to set an example well, while he was doing that, Mom and Ty laid a hex on him, he said you think you have done well you think you are free, a big man with the whites, but you will not live long I will see to that well, the next day Kicking Bird died after drinking a cup of coffee. He was 34 years old. The army surgeon who treated him said he'd been poisoned with strychnine. And There had been a a fatalistic element in Kicking Bird's struggle to maintain peace. In the unending hatred between whites and Indians, Kicking Bird had foreseen the apocalypse. I fear blood must flow and my heart is sad he told a Quaker friend before the Red River War. The white man is strong, but he cannot destroy us all in one year. It will take him two or three years, maybe four years, and then the world will turn to water or burn up. It is our mother and cannot live when all the Indians are dead. And with Kicking Bird's words uh, and and my remarks, again, review the doing the three myths that we talked about. I'd like to thank you for coming. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource
0: Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.